Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 372 of Forgotten Classics, where we are in the middle of a mystery, and things are going to heat up today, but more about that in a minute, because I have a podcast highlight. Now, we all know the classic tales by B.J. Harrison, or at least you do if you've been listening to me do these podcast highlights for very long. I wanted to mention he has begun a new book, and it's one that I remember so fondly from my early science fiction reading days. It's called Death World by Harry Harrison, and this is a prime example of um, adventure space opera. It's about a professional gambler, Jason Den Alt, who's challenged by somebody to win a large amount of money. Well, an immense sum of money. And he's given a lot of money to gamble with. And what we find out is Jason has a secret. There's a reason he's so good at gambling. But I won't ruin that for you. And then... In the course of the adventures, for instance, winning the money and trying to keep it from the casino, he discovers that his employer actually is a superior physical specimen to anything he's ever seen. He's faster on the draw, he's super strong, and he becomes really curious about it. Since he's got to leave before the casino gets him, and this is a casino world, so he's got to go off world, he wants to go see where this guy came from, what made him into what he is. At which point, the man says, oh, no, you don't want to go there. It's the deadliest planet in the universe. Well, that just piques his interest even more. So Jason takes off to see what is Death World. As I say, it's a wonderful adventure. It's not super deep, but it's super fun. And B.J. Harrison is a great narrator, as you all should know by now. So definitely go check it out. Death World at the Classic Tales Podcast. Now, we got some more information last time, didn't we? All of a sudden, Jack Glenarm is going, wait, hold on, in this environment at the train? Olivia seems a lot older. She's not a schoolgirl anymore. She's dressed like a grown woman, and oh, holy moly, she is a grown woman. I was such an idiot. So what soon comes out, of course, is in the course of conversation with someone else, he discovers this is Marion Devereaux. Well, we probably all guessed that all along, but it was fun watching this guy who prides himself on being an adventurer, a man of the world, get snookered by this woman who has a great sense of fun. Also, when he was talking to her, he makes a daredevil bet because she says, oh, well, you know, you won't be able to pursue me because I'm going to spend Christmas Eve away from here and you can't leave the town or the house. And he's like, oh, really? Guess what? I'm going to be at your party. And she's going, no, 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 no. You don't have an invitation. You don't know where I'm going. It's worth a fortune. Thank you very much for the compliment, but don't do it. And he's like, oh, no, it's happening. That's who I am. So we're left with that little promise. And you think, is he really going to give it all up for her? He already said he didn't care about money, but hmm, I don't know. And then we meet Sister Teresa, who's not at all old and crabby and everything that Jack had been afraid of. She's kind of a neat lady. Kind of pretty, got a lot of authority, very straightforward in terms of saying, here's the way things are laid out. Your grandfather gave all the money to build this stuff with, and now Pickering, who we hate, is saying it was just a loan and we have to pay back all this money, which we do not have, or he'll foreclose. And at the same time, Pickering is looking for the lost fortune because the grandfather died with almost no money, and everybody knows the grandfather had money. So where is it? So Pickering is just a bounder. A bounder. We know it. Jack's going to help, of course. He doesn't like Pickering. He does like Sister Teresa. And he most definitely likes Marion. And that's where we're left 
and we are going to head into all kinds of adventure in this one. Let's dive in. Chapter 18. Golden Butterflies. If you are one of those captious people who must verify by the calendar every new moon you read of in a book, and if you are pained to discover the historian lifting anchor and spreading sail, contrary to the reckonings of the nautical almanac, I beg to call your attention to these items from the timetable of the Midwestern and Southern Railway for December 1901. The southbound express passed Annandale at exactly 53 minutes after 4 p.m., it was scheduled to reach Cincinnati at eleven o'clock sharp. These items are, I trust, sufficiently explicit. To the student of morals and motives, I will say a further word. I had resolved to practice deception in running away from Glenarm House to keep my promise to Marion Devereux. By leaving, I should forfeit my right to any part of my grandfather's estate. I knew that, and accepted the issue without regret, but I had no intention of surrendering Glenarm House to Arthur Pickering, particularly now that I realized how completely I had placed myself in his trap. I felt, moreover, a duty to my dead grandfather, and, not least, the attacks of Morgan and the strange ways of Bates had stirred whatever fighting blood there was in me. Pickering and I were engaged in a sharp contest, and I was beginning to enjoy it to the full, but I did not falter in my determination to visit Cincinnati, hoping to return without my absence being discovered. So the next afternoon I began preparing for my journey." "'Bates, I fear I am taking a severe cold, and I am going to douse myself with whiskey and quinine and go to bed. I shan't want any dinner. Nothing until you see me again.' I yawned and stretched myself with a groan. "'I am very sorry, sir. Shan't I call a doctor?' "'Not a bit of it. I'll sleep it off and be as lively as a cricket in the morning.' At four o'clock I told him to carry some hot water and lemons to my room, bade him an emphatic good-night, and locked the door as he left. Then I packed my evening clothes in a suitcase. I threw the bag in a heavy ulster from a window, swung myself out upon the limb of a big maple, and let it bend under me to its sharpest curve, then drop lightly to the ground. I passed the gate and struck off toward the village with a joyful sense of freedom. When I reached the station, I sought at once the southbound platform, not wishing to be seen buying a ticket. A few other passengers were assembling, but I saw no one I recognized. Number six, I heard the agent say, was on time, and in a few minutes it came roaring up. I bought a seat in the Washington sleeper and went into the dining car for supper. The train was full of people hurrying to various ports for the holidays, but they had, I reflected, no advantage over me. I, too, was bound on a definite errand, though my journey was, I imagined, less commonplace in its character than the homing flight of most of my fellow travelers. I made myself comfortable and dozed and dreamed as the train plunged through the dark. There was a wait, with much shifting of cars, where we crossed the Wabash, then we sped on. It grew warmer as we drew southward, and the conductor was confident we should reach Cincinnati on time. The through passengers about me went to bed, and I was left sprawled out in my open section, lurking on the shadowy frontier between the known world and dreamland. "'We are running into Cincinnati ten minutes late,' said the porter's voice, and in a moment I was in the vestibule and out, hurrying to a hotel. At the St. Baltoff, I ordered a carriage and broke all records changing my clothes. The timetable informed me that the Northern Express left at half-past one. There was no reason why I should not be safe at Glenarm House by my usual breakfast hour if all went well. To avoid loss of time in returning to the station, I paid the hotel charge and carried my bag away with me. "'Dr. Armstrong's residence? Yes, sir. I've already taken one load there.' The carriage was soon climbing what seemed to be a mountain to the heights above Cincinnati. To this day I associate Ohio's most interesting city with a lonely carriage ride that seemed to be chiefly uphill, through a region that was as strange to me as a trackless jungle in the wilds of Africa, and my heart began to perform strange tattoos on my ribs. I was going to the house of a gentleman who did not know of my existence, to see a girl who was his guest, to whom I had never, as the conventions go, been presented. It did not seem half so easy, now that I was well launched upon the adventure." I stopped the cabman just as he was about to enter an iron gateway, whose posts bore two great lamps. "'That is all right, sir. I can drive right in.' "'But you needn't,' I said, jumping out. "'Wait here.' Dr. Armstrong's residence was brilliantly lighted, and the strains of a waltz stole across the lawn cheerily. Several carriages swept past me as I followed the walk. I was arriving at a fashionable hour, 
it was nearly twelve, and just how to effect an entrance without being thrown out as an interloper was a formidable problem, now that I had reached the house. I must catch my train home, and this left no margin for explanation to an outraged host whose first impulse would be very likely to turn me over to the police. I made a detour and studied the house, seeking a door by which I could enter, without passing the unfriendly Gibraltar of a host and hostess on guard to welcome belated guests. A long conservatory filled with tropical plants gave me my opportunity. Promenaders went idly through and out into another part of the house by an exit I could not see. A handsome, spectacled gentleman opened a glass door within a yard of where I stood, sniffed the air, and said to his companion, as he turned back with a shrug into the conservatory, "'There's no sign of snow. It isn't Christmas weather at all.' He strolled away through the palms, and I instantly threw off my ulster and hat, cast them behind some bushes, and boldly opened the door and entered. The ballroom was on the third floor, but the guests were straggling down to supper, and I took my stand at the foot of the broad stairway and glanced up carelessly, as though waiting for someone. It was a large and brilliant company, and many a lovely face passed me as I stood waiting. The very size of the gathering gave me security, and I smoothed my gloves complacently. The spectacled gentleman whose breath of night air had given me a valued hint of the open conservatory door came now and stood beside me. He even put his hand on my arm with intimate friendliness. There was a sound of mirth and scampering feet in the hall above, and then down the steps, between the lines of guests arrested in their descent, came a dark laughing girl in the garb of Little Red Riding Hood, amid general applause and laughter. "'It's Olivia. She's won the wager,' exclaimed the spectacled gentleman, and the girl— whose dark curls were shaken about her face, ran up to us and threw her arms about him and kissed him. It was a charming picture, the figures on the stairway, the pretty, graceful child, the eager, happy faces all about. I was too much interested by this scene of the comedy to be uncomfortable. Then, at the top of the stair, her height accented by her gown of white, stood Marion Devereux, hesitating an instant, as a bird pauses before taking wing, and then laughingly running between the lines to where Olivia faced her in mock abjection. To the charm of the girl in the woodland was added now the dignity of beautiful womanhood, and my heart leaped at the thought that I had ever spoken to her, that I was there because she had taunted me with the risk of coming. Above on the stair landing a deep-toned clock began to strike midnight, and everyone cried, Merry Christmas! and Olivia's won! and there was more hand-clapping, in which I joined with good will. Someone behind me was explaining what had just occurred. Olivia, the youngest daughter of the house, had been denied a glimpse of the ball. Miss Devereux had made a wager with her host that Olivia would appear before midnight, and Olivia had defeated the plot against her and gained the main hall at the stroke of Christmas. "'Good-night! Good-night!' cried Olivia, the real Olivia, in derision to the company, and turned and ran back through the applauding, laughing throng. The spectacled gentleman was Olivia's father, and he mockingly rebuked Marion Devereux for having encouraged an infraction of parental discipline, while she was twitting him upon the loss of his wager. Then her eyes rested upon me for the first time. She smiled slightly, but continued talking placidly to her host. The situation did not please me. I had not travelled so far, and burglariously entered Dr. Armstrong's house in quest of a girl with blue eyes, merely to stand by while she talked to another man. I drew nearer, impatiently, and was conscious that four other young men in white waistcoats and gloves, quite as irreproachable as my own, stood ready to claim her the instant she was free. I did not propose to be thwarted by the bow of Cincinnati, so I stepped toward Dr. Armstrong. "'I beg your pardon, doctor,' I said with an assurance for which I blush to this hour. "'All right, my boy, I too have been in Arcady,' he exclaimed in cheerful apology, and she put her hand on my arm, and I led her away." "'He called me my boy, so I must be passing muster,' I remarked, not daring to look at her. "'He's afraid not to recognize you. His inability to remember faces is a town joke.' We reached a quiet corner of the great hall, and I found a seat for her. "'You don't seem surprised to see me. You knew I would come. I should have come across the world for this, for just this.' Her eyes were grave at once. "'Why did you come? I did not think you were so foolish. This is all so wretched, so unfortunate.' You didn't know that Mr. Pickering—Mr. Pickering—she was greatly distressed, and this name came from her chokingly. "'Yes, what of him?' I laughed. "'He is well on his way to California, and without you.' 
She spoke hurriedly, eagerly, bending toward me. No, you don't know. You don't understand. He's here. He abandoned his California trip at Chicago. He telegraphed me to expect him here tonight. You must go at once, at once. Ah, but you can't frighten me, I said, trying to realize just what a meeting with Pickering in that house might mean. No, she looked anxiously about. They were to arrive late. He and the Taylors. They know the Armstrongs quite well. They may come at any moment now. Please go. But I have only a few minutes myself. You wouldn't have me sit them out in the station downtown. There are some things I have come to say, and Arthur Pickering and I are not afraid of each other. But you must not meet him here. Think what that would mean to me. You are very foolhardy, Mr. Glenarm. I had no idea you would come. But you wish to try me. You challenged me. That wasn't me. It was Olivia. She laughed, more at ease. I thought— Yes, what did you think? I asked. That I was tied hand and foot by a dead man's money? No, it wasn't that wretched fortune. But I enjoyed playing the child before you. I really love Olivia, and it seemed that the fairies were protecting me, and that I could play being a child to the very end of the chapter, without any real mischief coming of it. I wish I were Olivia, she declared, her eyes away from me. That's rather idle. I'm not really sure yet what your name is, and I don't care. Let's imagine that we haven't any names. I'm sure my name isn't of any use, and I'll be glad to go nameless all my days, if only— If only, she repeated idly, opening and closing her fan. It was a frail blue trifle, painted in golden butterflies. There are so many if-onlys that I hesitate to choose, but I will venture one. If only you will come back to St. Agatha's, not to-morrow or the next day, but say with the first bluebirds. I believe they are harbingers up there. Her very ease was a balm to my spirit. She was now a veritable daughter of repose. One arm in its long white sheath lay quietly in her lap. Her right hand held the golden butterflies against the soft curve of her cheek. A collar of pearls clasped her throat and accented the clear girlish lines of her profile. I felt the appeal of her youth and purity. It was like a cry in my heart, and I forgot the dreary house by the lake and pickering and the weeks within the stone walls of my prison. The friends who know me best never expect me to promise to be anywhere at a given time. I can't tell. Perhaps I shall follow the bluebirds to Indiana. But why should I, when I can't play being Olivia any more? No, I am very dull. That note of apology you wrote from the school really fooled me. But I have seen the real Olivia now. I don't want you to go too far. Not where I can't follow. This flight I shall hardly dare repeat. Her lips closed, like a rose that had gone back to be a bud again, and she pondered a moment, slowly freeing and imprisoning the golden butterflies. You have risked a fortune, Mr. Glenarm, very, very foolishly, and more if you are found here. Why, Olivia must have recognized you. She must have seen you often across the wall. But I don't care. I'm not staying at that ruin up there for money. My grandfather meant more to me than that. Yes, I believe that is so. He was a dear old gentleman, and he liked me because I thought his jokes adorable. My father and he had known each other. But there was no expectation, no wish to profit by his friendship. My name in his will is a great embarrassment, a source of real annoyance. The newspapers have printed dreadful pictures of me. That is why I say to you, quite frankly, that I wouldn't accept a cent of Mr. Glenarm's money if it were offered me. And that is why, and her smile was a flash of spring, I want you to obey the terms of the will and earn your fortune. She closed the fan sharply and lifted her eyes to mine. "'But there isn't any fortune. It's all a myth, a joke,' I declared. "'Mr. Pickering doesn't seem to think so. He had every reason for believing that Mr. Glenharm was a very rich man. The property can't be found in the usual places—banks, safety vaults, and the like. Then where do you think it is? Or better, where do you think Mr. Pickering thinks it is?' "'But assuming that it's buried up there by the lake like a pirate's treasure, it isn't Pickering's if he finds it. There are laws to protect even the dead from robbery,' I concluded hotly. "'How difficult you are! Suppose you should fall from a boat or be shot accidentally. Then I might have to take the fortune after all, and Mr. Pickering might think of an easier way of getting it than by—stealing it? Yes, but you wouldn't!' Half-past twelve struck on the stairway, and I started to my feet. "'You wouldn't,' I repeated. "'I might, you know.' "'I must go, but not with that, not with any hint of that, please.' "'If you let him defeat you, if you fail to spend your year there—' will overlook this one lapse. She looked me steadily in the eyes, wholly guiltless of coquetry, but infinitely kind. Then— She paused, opened the fan, 
held it up to the light, and studied the golden butterflies. Yes? Then, let me see. Oh, I shall never chase another rabbit as long as I live. Now go, quickly, quickly. But you haven't told me when and where it was we met the first time. Please. She laughed, but urged me away with her eyes. I shan't do it. It isn't proper for me to remember, if your memory is so poor. I wonder how it would seem for us to meet just once and be introduced. Good night. You really came. You are a gentleman of your word, Squire Glenarm. She gave me the tips of her fingers, without looking at me. A servant came in hurriedly. Miss Devereux, Mr. and Mrs. Taylor and Mr. Pickering are in the drawing-room. Yes, very well. I will come at once. Then to me. They must not see you. There, that way. And she stood in the door, facing me, her hands lightly touching the frame, as though to secure my way. I turned for a last look, and saw her waiting, her eyes bent gravely upon me, her arms still half-raised, barring the door. Then she turned swiftly away into the hall. Outside I found my hat and coat, and wakened my sleeping driver. He drove like mad into the city, and I swung upon the north-bound sleeper, just as it was drawing out of the station. CHAPTER Nineteen, I MEET AN OLD FRIEND When I reached the house I found, to my astonishment, that the window I had left open as I scrambled out the night before was closed. I dropped my bag and crept to the front door, thinking that if Bates had discovered my absence it was useless to attempt any further deception. I was amazed to find the great doors of the main entrance flung wide, and in real alarm I ran through the hall and back to the library. The nearest door stood open, and as I peered in, a curious scene disclosed itself. A few of the large cathedral candles still burned brightly in several places, their flame rising strangely in the grey morning light. Books had been taken from the shelves and scattered everywhere, and sharp implements had cut ugly gashes in the shelving. The drawers containing sketches and photographs had been pulled out, and their contents thrown about and trampled underfoot. The house was as silent as a tomb, but as I stood on the threshold, trying to realize what had happened, something stirred by the fireplace, and I crept forward, listening, until I stood by the long table beneath the great chandelier. Again I heard a sound as of some animal waking and stretching, followed by a moan that was undoubtedly human. Then the hands of a man clutched the farther edge of the table, and slowly, and evidently with infinite difficulty, a figure rose, and the dark face of Bates, with eyes blurred and staring strangely, confronted me. He drew his body to its height, and leaned heavily upon the table. I snatched a candle, and bent toward him, to make sure my eyes were not tricking me. "'Mr. Glenarm! Mr. Glenarm!' he exclaimed in broken whispers. "'It is Bates, sir.' "'What have you done? What has happened?' I demanded. He put his hand to his head uncertainly, and gaped as though trying to gather his wits." He was evidently dazed by whatever had occurred, and I sprang around and helped him to a couch. He would not lie down, but sat up, staring and passing his hand over his head. It was rapidly growing lighter, and I saw a purple and black streak across his temple where a bludgeon of some sort had struck him. "'What does this mean, Bates? Who has been in the house?' "'I can't tell you, Mr. Glenarm.' "'Can't tell me? You will tell me, or go to jail. There's been mischief done here.' and I don't intend to have any nonsense about it from you. Well? He was clearly suffering, but in my anger at the sight of the wreck of the room, I grasped his shoulder and shook him roughly. It was early, this morning, he faltered. About two o'clock. I heard noises in the lower part of the house. I came down, thinking likely it was you, and remembering that you had been sick yesterday. Yes, go on. The thought of my truancy was no balm to my conscience just then. As I came into the hall, I saw lights in the library. As you weren't down last night, the room hadn't been lighted at all. I heard steps, and someone tapping with a hammer. Yes, a hammer. Go on. It was then the same old story. The war had been carried openly into the house. But Bates, just why should anyone connected with the conspiracy injure Bates, who stood so near to Pickering, its leader. The fellow was undoubtedly hurt. There was no mistaking the lump on his head. He spoke with painful difficulty. That was not assumed. I felt increasingly sure, as he went on. I saw a man pulling out the books, and tapping the inside of the shelves. He was working very fast. 
and the next thing I knew he let in another man through one of the terrace doors, the one there that still stands a little open. He flinched as he turned slightly to indicate it, and his face twitched with pain. Never mind that. Tell the rest of your story. Then I ran in, grabbed one of the big candelabra from the table, and went for the nearest man. They were about to begin on the chimney-breast there. It was Mr. Glenarm's pride in all the house, and that accounts for my being there in front of the fireplace. They rather got the best of me, sir. Clearly, I see they did. You had a hand-to-hand fight with them, and being two to one— No, there are two of us, don't you understand? Two of us. There was another man who came running in from somewhere, and he took sides with me. I thought at first it was you. The robbers thought so, too, for one of them yelled, "'Great God, it's Glenarm!' just like that. But it wasn't you. Quite another person. "'That's a good story so far. And then what happened?' "'I don't remember much more, except that someone soused me with water that helped my head considerably, and the next thing I knew I was staring across the table there at you.' "'Who were these men, Bates? Speak up, quickly!' My tone was peremptory. Here was, I felt, a crucial moment in our relations. "'Well,' he began deliberately, "'I dislike to make charges against a fellow-man, but I strongly suspect one of the men of being—yes, tell the whole truth, or it will be the worse for you. I very much fear one of them was Ferguson, the gardener over the way. I am disappointed in him, sir.' "'Very good. And now for the other one?' I didn't get my eyes on him. I had closed with Ferguson, and we were having quite a lively time of it, when the other one came in. Then the man who came to my help mixed us all up. He was a very lively person, and what became of Ferguson and the rest of it I don't know. There was food for thought in what he said. He had taken punishment in defense of my property. The crack on his head was undeniable, and I could not abuse him or question his veracity with any grace, not at least without time for investigation and study. However, I ventured to ask him one question. If you are guessing, shouldn't you think it quite likely that Morgan was the other man? He met my gaze squarely. I think it wholly possible, Mr. Glenarm. And the man who helped you? Who in the devil was he? Bless me, I don't know. He disappeared. I'd like mightily to see him again. Humph! Now you'd better do something for your head. I'll summon the village doctor, if you say so. No, thank you, sir. I'll take care of it myself. And now, we'll keep quiet about this. Don't mention it or discuss it with anyone. Certainly not, sir. He rose and staggered a little, but crossed to the broad mantel-shelf in the great chimney-breast, rested his arm upon it for a moment, passed his hand over the dark wood with a sort of caress, then bent his eyes upon the floor, littered with books and drawings, and papers torn from the cabinets, and all splashed with tallow and wax from the candles. The daylight had increased until the havoc wrought by the night's visitors was fully apparent. The marauders had made a sorry mess of the room, and I thought Bates's lip quivered as he saw the wreck. It would have been a blow to Mr. Glenarm. The room was his pride, his pride, sir. He went out toward the kitchen, and I ran upstairs to my own room. I cursed the folly, that had led me to leave my window open, for undoubtedly Morgan and his new ally, St. Agatha's gardener, had taken advantage of it to enter the house. Quite likely, too, they had observed my absence, and this would undoubtedly be communicated to Pickering. I threw open my door and started back with an exclamation of amazement. Standing at my chiffonier, between two windows, was a man, clad in a bath-gown, my own, I saw with fury, his back to me, the razor at his face, placidly shaving himself. Without turning, he addressed me, quite coolly and casually, as though his being there was the most natural thing in the world. "'Good morning, Mr. Glenarm. Rather damaging evidence, that costume. I suppose it's the custom of the country for gentlemen in evening clothes to go out by the window and return by the door. You might think the other way round preferable.' "'Larry!' I shouted. "'Jack! Kick that door shut and lock it.' He commanded, in a sharp, severe tone, that I remembered well, and just now welcomed, in him. "'How, why, and when? Never mind about me. I'm here, thrown the enemy off for a few days, and you give me lessons in current history first, while I climb into my armor. 
"'Pray pardon the informality.' He seized a broom and began work upon a pair of trousers, to which mud and briars clung tenaciously. His coat and hat lay on a chair, they, too, much the worse for rough wear. There was never any use in refusing to obey Larry's orders, and as he got into his clothes I gave him in as few words as possible the chief incidents that had marked my stay at Glenarm House. He continued dressing with care, helping himself to a shirt and collar from my chiffonier, and choosing with unfailing eye the best tie in my collection. Now and then he asked a question tersely, or again he laughed or swore direly in Gaelic. When I had concluded the story of Pickering's visit, and of the conversation I overheard between the executor and Bates in the church porch, Larry wheeled around with the scarf half tied in his fingers, and surveyed me commiseratingly. "'And you didn't rush them both on the spot and have it out?' "'No, I was much too taken aback, for one thing.' "'I dare say you were.' "'And for another, I didn't think the time ripe. I'm going to beat that fellow, Larry, but I want him to show his hand fully before we come to a smash-up. I know as much about the house and its secrets as he does. That's one consolation. Sometimes I don't believe there's a shilling here, and again I'm sure there's a big stake in it. The fact that Pickering is risking so much to find what's supposed to be hidden here is pretty fair evidence that something's buried on the place.' "'Possibly, but they're giving you a lively boycott.' now where in the devil have you been well i began and hesitated i had not mentioned marion devereux and this did not seem the time for confidences of that sort he took a cigarette from his pocket and lighted it bah these women under the terms of your revered grandfather's will you have thrown away all your rights it looks to me as a member of the irish bar in bad standing as though you had delivered yourself up to the enemy so far as the legal situation is concerned how does it strike you of course i've forfeited my rights but i don't mean that any one shall know it yet a while my lad don't deceive yourself everybody round here will know it before night you ran off left your window open invitingly and two gentlemen who meditated breaking in found that they needn't take the trouble one came in through your own room noting of course your absence let in his friend below and tore up the place regrettably yes but how did you get here if you don't mind telling it's a short story that little chap from scotland yard who annoyed me so much in new york and drove me to mexico for which may he dwell forever in fiery torment has never given up i shook him off though at indianapolis three days ago i bought a ticket for pittsburgh with him at my elbow i suppose he thought the chase was growing tame and that the farther east he could arrest me the nearer i should be to a british consul and tidewater i went ahead of him into the station and out to the pittsburgh sleeper i dropped my bag into my section if that's what they call it in your atrocious american language looked out and saw him coming along the platform just then the car began to move they were shunting it about to attach a sleeper that had been brought in from louisville and my carriage or whatever you call it went skimming out of the sheds into a yard where everything seemed to be most noisy and complex i dropped off in the dark just before they began to haul the carriage back a long train of empty goods wagons was just pulling out and i threw my bag into a wagon and climbed after it we kept going for an hour or so until i was thoroughly lost then i took advantage of a stop at a place that seemed to be the end of terrestrial things got out and started across country i expressed my bag to you the other day from a town that rejoiced in the cheering name of kokomo just to get rid of it i walked into annandale about midnight found this medieval marvel through the kindness of the station-master and was reconnoitering with my usual caution when i saw a gentleman romantically entering through an open window larry paused to light a fresh cigarette you always did have a way of arriving opportunely go on it pleased my fancy to follow him and by the time i had studied your diggings here a trifle things began to happen below it sounded like a st patrick's day celebration in an irish village and i went on at a gallop to see if there was any chance of breaking in have you seen the room well he gave several turns to his right wrist as though to test it we all had a jolly time there by the fireplace another chap had got in somewhere so there were two of them your man i suppose it's your man was defending himself gallantly with a large thing of brass that looked like the pipes of a grand organ and i sailed in with a chair my presence seemed to surprise the attacking party who evidently thought i was you flattering i must say to me you undoubtedly saved bates's life and prevented the rifling of the house and after you had poured water on bates he's the servant you came up here that's the way of it you're a brick larry donovan 
there's only one of you and now and now john glenarm we've got to get down to business or you must as for me after a few hours of your enlivening society you don't go a step further until we go together no by the beard of the prophet i've a fight on here and i'm going to win it if i die in the struggle and you've got to stay with me to the end but under the will you dare not take a border of course i dare that will's as though it had never been as far as i'm concerned my grandfather never expected me to sit here alone and be murdered john marshall glenarm wasn't a fool exactly no but a trifle queer i should say i don't have to tell you old man that this situation appeals to me it's my kind of job if it weren't that the hounds are at my heels i'd like to stay with you but you have enough trouble on hands without opening the house to an attack by my enemies stop talking about it i don't propose to be deserted by the only friend i have in the world when i'm up to my eyes in trouble let's go down and get some coffee we found bates trying to remove the evidences of the night's struggle he had fastened a cold pack about his head and limped slightly otherwise he was the same silent and inexplicable daylight had not improved the appearance of the room several hundred books lay scattered over the floor and the shelves which had held them were hacked and broken bates if you can give us some coffee let the room go for the present yes sir and bates he paused and larry's keen eyes were bent sharply upon him mr donovan is a friend who will be with me for some time we'll fix up his room later in the day he limped out larry's eyes following him what do you think of that fellow i asked larry's face wore a puzzled look what do you call him bates he is a plucky fellow larry picked up from the hearth the big candelabrum with which bates had defended himself it was badly bent and twisted and larry grinned the fellow who went through the front door probably isn't feeling very well today your man was swinging this thing like a windmill i can't understand it i muttered i can't for the life of me see why he should have given battle to the enemy they all belong to pickering and bates is the biggest rascal of the bunch Humph. we'll consider that later and would you mind telling me what kind of a tallow foundry this is i never saw so many candlesticks in my life i seem to taste tallow i had no letters from you and i supposed you were loafing quietly in a grim farmhouse dying of ennui and here you are in an establishment that ought to be the imperial residence of an eskimo chief possibly you have crude petroleum for soup and whipped salad oil for dessert i declare a man living here ought to attain a high candle power of luminosity it's perfectly immense he stared and laughed and hidden treasure and night attacks and young virgins in the middle distance yes i'd really like to stay a while as we ate breakfast i filled in gaps i had left in my hurried narrative and with relief that i cannot describe filling my heart as i leaned again upon the sympathy of an old and trusted friend as bates came and went i marked larry's scrutiny of the man i dismissed him as soon as possible that we might talk freely take it up and down and all around what do you think of all this i asked larry was silent for a moment he was not given to careless speech in personal matters there's more to it than frightening you off or getting your grandfather's money it's my guess that there's something in this house that somebody pickering supposedly is very anxious to find yes i begin to think so he could come in here legally if it were merely a matter of searching for lost assets yes and whatever it is must be well hidden as i remember your grandfather died in june you got a letter calling you home in october it was sent out blindly with not one chance in a hundred that it would ever reach me to be sure you were a wanderer on the face of the earth and there was nobody in america to look after your interests you may be sure that the place was thoroughly ransacked while you were sailing home i'll wager you the best dinner you ever ate that there's more at stake than your grandfather's money the situation is inspiring i grow interested i'm almost persuaded to linger chapter twenty a triple alliance larry refused to share my quarters and chose a room for himself which bates fitted up out of the house stores i did not know what bates might surmise about larry but he accepted my friend in good part as a guest who would remain indefinitely he seemed to interest larry whose eyes followed the man inquiringly when we went into bates room on our tour of the house larry scanned the books on the little shelf with something more than a casual eye there were exactly four volumes shakespeare's comedies the fairy queen stern's sentimental journey and yeats land of heart's desire 
"'A queer customer, Larry. Nobody but my grandfather could ever have discovered him. He found him up in Vermont.' "'I suppose his being a blooming Yankee naturally accounts for this,' remarked Larry, taking from under the pillow of the narrow iron bed a copy of the Dublin Freeman's Journal. "'It is a little odd,' I said, "'but if you found a Yiddish newspaper or an Egyptian papyrus under his pillow, I should not be surprised.' "'Nor I,' said Larry. "'I'll wager that not another shelf in this part of the world contains exactly that collection of books and nothing else.' you will notice that there was once a bookplate in each of these volumes and that it's been scratched out with care on a small table were pen and ink in a curious much-worn portfolio he always gets the mail first doesn't he asked larry yes i believe he does i thought so and i'll swear he never got a letter from vermont in his life when we went down bates was limping about the library endeavouring to restore order bates i said to him you are a very curious person I have had a thousand and one opinions about you since I came here, and I still don't make you out. He turned from the shelves, a defaced volume in his hands. Yes, sir. It was a good deal that way with your lamented grandfather. He always said I puzzled him. Larry, safe behind the fellow's back, made no attempt to conceal a smile. I want to thank you for your heroic efforts to protect the house last night. You acted nobly, and I must confess, Bates, that I didn't think it was in you. You've got the right stuff in you. I'm only sorry that there are black pages in your record that I can't reconcile with your manly conduct of last night. But we've got to come to an understanding. Yes, sir. The most outrageous attacks have been made on me since I came here. You know what I mean well enough. Mr. Glenarm never intended that I should sit down in his house and be killed or robbed. He was the gentlest being that ever lived, and I'm going to fight for his memory and to protect his property from the scoundrels who have plotted against me. I hope you will follow me. "'Yes, Mr. Glenarm.' He was regarding me attentively. His lips quavered, perhaps from weakness, for he certainly looked ill. "'Now I offer you your choice, either to stand loyally by me and my grandfather's house, or to join these scoundrels Arthur Pickering has hired to drive me out. I'm not going to bribe you. I don't offer you a cent for standing by me. But I won't have a traitor in the house, and if you don't like me or my terms, I want you to go, and go now.' He straightened quickly. His eyes lighted, and the color crept into his face. I had never before seen him appear so like a human being. "'Mr. Glenarm, you have been hard on me. There have been times when you have been very unjust. Unjust? My God! What do you expect me to take from you? Haven't I known that you were in league with Pickering? I'm not as dull as I look, and after your interview with Pickering in the chapel porch, you can't convince me that you were faithful to my interests at that time.' He started, and gazed at me wonderingly. I had had no intention of using the chapel porch interview at this time, but it leaped out of me uncontrollably. "'I suppose, sir,' he began brokenly, "'that I can hardly persuade you that I meant no wrong on that occasion.' "'You certainly cannot, and it's safer for you not to try. But I'm willing to let that go as a reward for your work last night. Make your choice now. Stay here and stop your spying, or clear out of Annandale within an hour.' He took a step toward me. The table was between us, and he drew quite near, but stood clear of it, erect until there was something almost soldierly and commanding in his figure. "'By God! I will stand by you, John Glenarm,' he said, and struck the table smartly with his clenched hand. He flushed instantly, and I felt the blood mounting into my own face as we gazed at each other. He, Bates the servant, and I his master. He had always addressed me so punctiliously with the sir of respect that his declaration of fealty, spoken with so sincere and vigorous an air of independence, and with the bold emphasis of the oath, held me spellbound, staring at him. The silence was broken by Larry, who sprang forward and grasped Bates' hand. "'I too, Bates,' I said, feeling my heart leap with liking, even with admiration for the real manhood that seemed to transfigure this hireling, this fellow whom I charged with the most infamous treachery, this servant who had cared for my needs in so humble a spirit of subjection. The knocker on the front door sounded peremptorily, and Bates turned away without another word, and admitted Stoddard, who came in hurriedly. "'Merry Christmas!' in his big hearty tones was hardly consonant with the troubled look on his face. I introduced him to Larry, and asked him to sit down. "'Pray excuse our disorder. We didn't do it for fun. It was one of Santa Claus's tricks.' He stared about wonderingly. "'So you caught it, too, did you?' "'To be sure. You don't mean to say that they raided the chapel?' "'That's exactly what I mean to say. 
when i went into the church for my early service i found that some one had ripped off the wainscoting in half a dozen places and even pried up the altar it's the most outrageous thing i ever knew you've heard of the proverbial poverty of the church mouse what do you suppose anybody could want to raid a simple little country chapel for and more curious yet the church plate was untouched though the closet where it's kept was upset as though the miscreants had been looking for something they didn't find stoddard was greatly disturbed and gazed about the topsy-turvy library with growing indignation we drew together for a council of war here was an opportunity to enlist a new recruit on my side i already felt stronger by reason of larry's accession as to bates my mind was still numb and bewildered larry there's no reason why we shouldn't join forces with mr stoddard as he seems to be affected by this struggle we owe it to him and the school to put him on guard particularly since we know that ferguson's with the enemy yes certainly said larry he always liked or disliked new people unequivocally and i was glad to see that he surveyed the big clergyman with approval i'll begin at the beginning i said and tell you the whole story he listened quietly to the end while i told him of my experience with morgan of the tunnel into the chapel crypt and finally of the affair in the night in our interview with bates i feel like rubbing my eyes and accusing you of reading penny horrors he said that doesn't sound like the twentieth century in indiana but ferguson you'd better take a care in his direction sister teresa bless your heart ferguson's gone without notice he got his traps and skipped without saying a word to any one we'll hear from him again no doubt now gentlemen i believe we understand one another i don't like to draw you either one of you into my private affairs the big chaplain laughed <laughs> glenarm prefixes went out of commission quickly that morning if you hadn't let me in on this i should never have got over it why this is a page out of the good old times bless me i never appreciated your grandfather i must run i have another service but i hope you gentlemen will call on me day or night for anything i can do to help you please don't forget me i had the record once for putting the shot why not give our friend escort through the tunnel asked larry i'll not hesitate to say that i'm dying to see it to be sure we went down into the cellar and poked over the lantern and candlestick collections and i pointed out the exact spot where morgan and i had indulged in our revolver duel it was fortunate that the plastered walls of the cellar showed clearly the cuts and scars of the pistol balls or i fear my story would have fallen on incredulous ears the debris i had piled upon the false block of stone in the cellar lay as i had left it but the three of us quickly freed the trap the humor of the thing took strong hold of my new allies and while i was getting a lantern to light us through the passage larry sat on the edge of the trap and howled a few bars of a wild irish jig we set forth at once and found the passage unchanged when the cold air blew in upon us i paused have you gentlemen the slightest idea of where you are we must be under the school grounds i should say replied stoddard we're exactly under the stone wall those tall posts at the gate are a scheme for keeping fresh air in the passage you certainly have all the modern improvements observed larry and i heard him chuckling all the way to the crypt door when i pushed the panel open and we stepped into the crypt stoddard whistled and larry swore softly it must be for something exclaimed the chaplain you don't suppose mr glenarm built a secret passage just for the fun of it do you he must have had some purpose why i sleep out here within forty yards of where we stand and i never had the slightest idea of this but other people seem to know of it observed larry to be sure the curiosity of the whole countryside was undoubtedly piqued by the building of glenarm house the fact that workmen were brought from a distance was in itself enough to arouse interest morgan seems to have discovered the passage without any trouble more likely it was ferguson he was the sexton of the church and had a chance to investigate said stoddard and now gentlemen i must go to my service i'll see you again before the day is over and we make no confidences i admonished steth i believe that is the proper expression under all the circumstances and the reverend paul stoddard laughed clasped my hand and went up into the chapel vestry i closed the door in the wainscoting and hung the map back in place we went up into the little chapel and found a small company of worshippers assembled a few people from the surrounding farms half a dozen sisters sitting somberly near the chancel and the school servants stoddard came into the chancel lighted the altar tapers and began the anglican communion office i had forgotten what a church service was like and larry i felt sure 
had not attended church since the last time his family had dragged him to coral vespers it was comforting to know that here was at least one place of peace within reach of glenarm house but i may be forgiven i hope if my mind wandered that morning and my thoughts played hide-and-seek with memory for it was here in the winter twilight that marian devereux had poured out her girl's heart in a great flood of melody i was glad that the organ was closed it would have wrung my heart to hear a note from it that her hands did not evoke when we came out upon the church porch and i stood on the steps to allow larry to study the grounds one of the brown-robed sisterhood spoke my name it was sister teresa can you come in for a moment she asked i will follow at once i said she met me in the reception room where i had seen her before i'm sorry to trouble you on christmas day with my affairs but i have had a letter from mr pickering saying that he will be obliged to bring suit for settlement of my account with mr glenarm's estate i needn't say that this troubles me greatly in my position a lawsuit is uncomfortable it would do a great harm to the school mr pickering implies in a very disagreeable way that i exercised an undue influence over mr glenarm you can readily understand that this is not a pleasant accusation he is going pretty far i said he gives me credit for a degree of power over others that i regret to say i do not possess he thinks for instance that i am responsible for miss devereux's attitude toward him something that i have had nothing whatever to do with no of course not i'm glad that you have no harsh feeling toward her it was unfortunate that mr glenarm saw fit to mention her in his will it has given her a great deal of notoriety and has doubtless strengthened the impression in some minds that she and i really plotted to get as much as possible of your grandfather's estate no one would regret all this more than my grandfather i am sure of that there are many inexplicable things about his affairs it seems hardly possible that a man so shrewd as he and so thoughtful of the feelings of others should have left so many loose ends behind him but i assure you i am giving my whole attention to these matters and i am wholly at your service in anything i can do to help you i sincerely hope that nothing may interfere to prevent your meeting mr glenarm's wish that you remain through the year that was a curious and whimsical provision but it is not i imagine so difficult she spoke in a kindly tone of encouragement that made me feel uneasy and almost ashamed for having already forfeited my claim under the will her beautiful gray eyes disconcerted me i had not the heart to deceive her i have already made it impossible for me to inherit under the will i said the disappointment in her face rebuked me sharply i am sorry very sorry indeed she said coldly but how may i ask i ran away last night i went to cincinnati to see miss devereux she rose staring in dumb astonishment and after a full minute in which i tried vainly to think of something to say i left the house there is nothing in the world so tiresome as explanations and I have never in my life tried to make them without floundering into seas of trouble.